Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would just have your way with us now, and that you would guide us and lead us, that you would teach us what we need to learn. And uh, just have your way with us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, you may know that we're in Ezekiel chapter 40 today, and you can start to turn there. But uh, if you're turning there, put your left hand in there, and then turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you've been in this church or heard me talk for any period of time, uh, you know these verses, chapter 3, and you know which verse I'm going to read. Anybody want to guess which verses I'm going to read? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That's correct. Um, and, I, and I go there now because, um, well, because not everybody's been around long enough to hear me rant on this, and I just want to make sure you can't rant enough on this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, or we could imply the woman of God, the child of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do we believe that? Loaded question. Well, I didn't think it was that loaded. Do we believe that? Yes. Now, take note of the absolute terms in, this, in these two verses, please. How much scripture? All. Um, the man of God may be what? Complete, if you're reading the New King James. Thoroughly equipped for how many good works? Every good work. Nice. Every good work. All scripture, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This, these two verses are written there so we can anchor on the Word of God. How much of the Word of God was the first word I read? All of it. And why would I go into that this morning? Because some passages that we read, frankly, are inspiring. Some passages are gripping. Some passages make us cry. Some passages uh, give us great insight into history. And some passages are just, if I can just be honest, some passages are a little bit of work to get through. Is that fair? And so you'll know, today is the test of, are we as a body committed to teaching verse by verse through the Scripture, Genesis to Exodus, Genesis to Exodus, Genesis to Revelation? Yes, we are. And today we'll prove it, because I'm going to read some Scripture that would only be read in a church that's committed to reading through the entire Bible. Because frankly, uh, if there's ever a, a passage that you'd say, you know, you might get a little dizzy by the end of the day. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that. You might get a little dizzy. But, and so the bottom line is we're going to read about uh, the dimensions of a temple. And uh, this temple, uh, I believe, is going to be a physical temple that's very literal because we... Here as a, as a body, we interpret scripture, we interpret prophetic scripture literally. Why do we interpret it literally? Because when Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled scripture, prophetic scripture, very, very literally. That's one reason. Another reason, 
Daniel, probably the best, best writer and interpreter of, this, of prophecy in the Bible, he reads Jeremiah's prophecy and he interprets it literally. Jeremiah said, we're going to be captive in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel says, I think that means 70 years. And so Daniel interprets it literally. Jesus fulfilled prophecy the first time literally. So wherever possible, we're going to interpret scripture, prophetic scripture, literally. And that kind of, um, well, if you're into theological terms, which I'm not, I'm going to avoid them because I always avoid them. But if you're into theological terms, that puts us into a certain group of, of prophetic readers. Is that fair? But we are, I am, and that's what we're going to do. And so with that, We've got to keep in mind, Ezekiel is writing to some captives in Babylon. Uh, he was taken with the second group of captives in 597 B.C., and uh, they're going to be captive there uh, for 70 years from the time of the initial captivity. Um, and at, that, at the end of that time, they're going to go back to uh, Jerusalem after they're released by the Medes and Persians. Uh, this is all prophesied in, in Jeremiah. We've talked about it before. And... So if we go through our little prophetic timeline, there's the captivity in, in, in Babylon, and then there's the end of that captivity at 70 years, and then we fast forward to the time of Christ. Uh, at the time of Christ, we see they're occupied now by the Romans, and uh, shortly after the time of Christ in 70 A.D., the nation of Israel basically ceases to exist because it was conquered by the Romans and destroyed. And we see sort of a gap in the timeline from 70 A.D. until 1948 when Israel becomes a nation again, which, again, I'll say it every week, I'll say it today. Imagine a nation ceasing to exist from 70 A.D. to 1948. And when it, when it becomes a nation again, we have the, um, uh, the restoration of the nation the, uh, the religion, the identity, the, the, the whole national and religious identity of the Jewish people. It's, it's, it's nothing short of miraculous. And so that was in 1948. And then 1948, the next thing on the timeline, I believe prophetically, is the rapture of the church. Uh, the rapture of the church, and then uh, we see a seven-year tribulation period, uh, during which time Antichrist will rise to power. Uh, he'll make a covenant with the Jewish people. We'll see that the Jewish people um, uh, are a bit deceived through that, but we also see that uh, there's a great revival amongst the Jewish people at the end of that seven, or during that seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that time, uh, Jesus comes back, Revelation chapter 19, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, uh, establishes a millennial kingdom, and now we get into what we're going to read about today. That millennial kingdom lasts for a thousand years. Jesus is uh, king, reigning from Jerusalem. Uh, Satan is bound for a time, for a thousand year period. And then at the end of that thousand years, uh, Satan is released for a brief time. And uh, then finally, um, uh, we see heaven and hell and those that are saved go to heaven. And we hope we're in that group. Fair enough? So we see this whole timeline from the captivity in Babylon to, uh, for our purposes today, we'll say the, millennium, the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ. And we see Ezekiel describe a temple. Now, at the time of the uh, captivity in Babylon, 
they've been through temples before. They had a tabernacle originally in the desert, right, with Moses. And then uh, Solomon uh, built a temple, and then um, it was destroyed. And then there's going to be another temple built uh, when the captives return. And uh, that'll be a temple. And then there'll be Herod's temple that's referenced uh, during the time of Christ. That'll be a temple. But none of those temples match up with the one we're going to read about today. Okay? There'll be a yet future temple during the beginning of the tribulation period. And this will be the time that um, uh, Antichrist will make a deal with the Jewish people to rebuild a temple. But because Antichrist is going to desecrate that temple... Uh, midway through the tribulation period. Many people believe, and I would be one of them, that that's not the temple that we're talking about here either, because that would be a desecrated temple. So we're going to read about a temple. Fair enough? Everybody okay with this? I said all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? And so this is part of the word of God, right? And so God wrote it in the Bible, and so we're going to give it Frankly, the respect that it's due um, by reading it, and um, if you find it um, cumbersome, uh, that's okay. Uh, but like I say, there's different pieces of the scripture that gives us different reasons. Fair enough? Keep in mind also, you're a Jewish captive in Babylon. That's the audience that Ezekiel's writing to. You're a Jewish captive in Babylon. Your people have been around since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your people have, you're God's people. And you happen to be the generation that, has, that is now facing what could very well be, or what looks like in the moment, the end of Judaism as we know it, the end of the Jewish people, the end of the hope for the Messiah ever coming back, the end of lots of things. And so those people need hope. And what better hope than for Ezekiel to tell them there's going to be a temple someday. You don't need to know necessarily when it fits in the timeline. Just know that there's going to be a temple someday. And there's going to be a restoration. And the Messiah is going to bring everything to, to light. And let me just say this just parenthetically for a second. If we get nothing else out of prophetic scripture, I'd like for us to capture this idea. There's a prophetic timeline. Fair enough? And when we look at prophecy, we see kind of, it forces us to see sort of a broader picture of, oh, God is in control of all things. Now, do we live our lives according to an eternal timeline? day by day, or do we tend to, as a, and I'm talking about maybe emotionally and just in terms of how much brain space we occupy, or do we tend to live day by day, challenge by challenge, crisis by crisis? Sometimes we live that way, right? And so if nothing else, let the prophetic scripture encourage us that God sees a way bigger plan. God sees a way bigger picture than whatever that thing is that we're going through today. And I say that because many of us are going through things today. I'm aware of that. Difficult things. Hard things. Things that sometimes, in some cases, you thought, I'd never, I thought I'd never have to face this. 
And yet, here you are. And God brings us through things. And God is eternally as aware and as sovereign over the events of history as he is the events of your life today. And if you were a captive in Babylon, you'd be very discouraged. And you would need to be encouraged. And you would need to know that there's a future and a hope, as Jeremiah says. Fair enough? So with that, let's look at this temple. All right? So this is the temple. Okay? That's a picture of it. Everybody got it? All right, we'll see you next week. Just kidding. Uh, So the temple is described in a lot of detail, chapters 40 through 43. Um, 44 to 46 is kind of some of the restoration of the temple worship. 47, 48 is a division of the land in the millennial time. And so um, uh, basically the chapters we're going to read about today are going to basically outline all this, and probably it's worthwhile to have a uh, picture that goes with the description. Is that fair? It's less fair than it was a few minutes ago, but it's still fair. All right, chapter 40. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, and the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, On it, toward the south, was something like a structure of a city. So, we see at the beginning, this is about 573 B.C. The day depends on if you're talking about the civil calendar or the religious calendar. Some people would say this is actually the Day of Atonement that Ezekiel receives this vision. And interestingly, this is 13 years after the last vision that Ezekiel got. Now, how often are we willing, how long are we willing to sit around and wait for the Lord to speak to us? Or the Lord to give us some great insight? Or the Lord to move us? Or us to feel like, uh, okay, I'm, I, I got some kind of word from the Lord. And are we willing to be faithful during those maybe quiet times? Does that make sense? Ezekiel, we know Ezekiel is... You know, he's one of the rock stars of the Christian faith or of the Jewish faith, right? And he was patiently waiting faithfully for 13 years for the next vision. So that's, that's when the timing of this comes, and it's, and it's no coincidence. In chapter 8, we read back in, the, in chapter 8 of Ezekiel that God took Ezekiel, quote, in visions to Jerusalem in its current state and the time when the Babylonians were uh, destroying it and the Jewish people were still trying to live with all of their idolatry. And so now he's going to see a much different state, but this is now a vision uh, that, he's, uh, that he's seeing. Verse 3, he took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. And so that's what he's going to do. So Ezekiel's doing that. He's, he's uh, looking with his eyes, he's hearing with his ears, and he's fixing with his mind. Wouldn't that be a great model for us to approach the Lord? You know, sometimes I think it's possible, at least for me, to give the Lord sort of my attention, right? And, you know, kind of hear, 
kind of see, but fix my mind. That's a, that's a tough one. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above where Christ is. You ever looked at your phone uh, and looked at the screen time uh, data? Raise your hand if you've ever seen what your screen time is on your phone. Raise your hand if you've ever said, that's not right. There's no way I'm on my phone three hours a day or whatever it is, right? They're, uh, Apple, they, what do they know about data, right? We are very... Uh, we as a family, we're trying to work through this right now. We're a very distractible society. Very distractible. Very distractible. Ezekiel is told to look with his eyes and hear with his ears and fix his mind on everything that God shows him. What a model for us. What a model for us. So, here we go. We're going to go through it. Verse 5. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In a man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. And so uh, what we see here now, he's going to go into um, some detail regarding the, the size and all that. A cubit. Uh, traditionally was an 18, there was two different measurements of a cubit. There was the traditional cubit, which was about 18 inches long. They said it was the distance between a man's elbow and the tip of his hand. And there was a cubit and a hand breadth, which was kind of the extended cubit. And that's what he's talking about here. That's about 21 inches long. And the rod then would be about 10 and a half feet long. And so the wall of the outer court, so we're going to see, obviously it's not a three-dimensional but the wall of all the outer court, it's ten and a half feet high. So that's that. All right. So now he's going to go into some different sections regarding some different pieces of this, uh, of this temple, and we'll just uh, work through it. All right. Verse 6. Then he went to the gateway, which faced east. And he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod wide. And so we're going to see... Uh, the east gate, okay, see north, east, and south. There's three outer gates, and we're going to highlight now, we're going to talk about the east gate and give some details there. There's all these little kind of, think of it more like, a, rather than a gate, think of it as a hallway entering into uh, the outer court. And so um, the east gate is the one that uh, Jesus will come through uh, in the millennium. So that's given a lot more detail here. And so verse 7 each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits, and the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule of the inside gate was one rod. He also measured the vestibule on the inside gate, one rod. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and the gate post, two cubits. The vestibule of the gate was on the inside, and the eastern gateway were three gate chambers on one side and three on the other. So you see these like little chambers on each side of that. And then this is the vestibule of the gate. So basically we're kind of breaking down the gate itself here. Um, in the eastern gateway were three gate chambers, one on one, one on, on one side and three on the other. There were 
all the same size. All the gate posts were the same size on this side and that side. He measured the width of the entrance to the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. There was a space in front of the gate chamber, one cubit on this side and one cubit on that side. The gate chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. Then he measured the gateway from the roof of one gate chamber to the roof of the other. The width was 25 cubits as door faces door. He measured the gate post 60 cubits high and the cord all around the gateway extended to the gate posts from the front of the entrance gate to the front of the vestibule of the inner gate was 50 cubits. There were beveled window frames in the gate chambers and in the intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around. And likewise, all in the vestibules, there were windows all around on the inside and on each gate post were palm trees. So that's basically the pieces of the eastern gate. That's where Jesus will come through. And so you can see, again, lots of detail. Can you, are you thankful for the internet people that give us pictures for this, right? So, the outer court, verse 17, then he brought me to the outer court, and there were chambers and a pavement made all around the the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateways, corresponding to the length of the gateways. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubits toward the east and the north. And so, uh, basically, you got this outer, uh, <clears throat> outer courtyard, and basically 100 cubits from you know here to here. Uh, that'd be about, if I remember right, I think. Uh, no, I think this is this part is about 175 feet in in length, and this part's about 875 feet. So this is a big, this is a big temple court. And if you look at, if you do. Um, if you look online at size comparisons, like for example between this and Solomon's temple, uh, this is massively bigger, massively bigger. So suffice to say, this is way bigger than Solomon's temple, and so um, it's pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. Verse 20, on the outer court also was a gateway facing north, right? Right there, you get the idea. And he measured its length and its width. Its gate chambers, three on this side, three on that side. Its gate posts, its archways had the same measurements as the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its windows and those of its archways and also its palm trees had the same measurements as the gateway facing east. It was ascended by seven steps and its archway was in front of it. A gate of the inner court was opposite the northern gateway, just as the eastern gateway. And he measured from gateway to gateway 100 cubits. So... Yeah, so he's saying <clears throat> the north gateway is just like the east gateway, and it's 100 cubits from the, uh, from the north gateway to the gateway of the inner court, which uh, is opposite that, all right? So we'll see that. After he, verse 24, after he brought me toward the south, after that he brought me toward the south, and there was their gateway was facing south, and he measured its gate posts, and archways, according to these same measurements, there were windows in it and archways all around it like those windows. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Seven steps led up to it and its archway was in front of them. And it had palm trees on, the, on its gateposts, one on this side, one on that side. There was also a gateway on the inner court facing south. And he measured from gateway to gateway toward the south 
100 cubits. And so again, so we talked about the east gateway, and then we said the north is pretty much the same as the east, and we said the south is pretty much the same as the east. And they all, they all are opposite the corresponding gateways in the inner court. Fair enough so far? I like what one pastor said, uh, I was listening to, he said, put it this way. He said, you know, we all kind of recognize that this is a bit, uh, it is what it is. He said, I don't want any of you guys to show up in the millennium and look up and say, what is that? Right? And you picture like Jesus over here in the corner like, who's your pastor? <laughs> right? So when you guys get there, okay, okay, so you work through this with me for an hour. But, but when you get there, you'll say, oh yeah, it's Ezekiel's temple. Cool. Right? Say, oh yeah, it's Ezekiel. Just work with it. Oh yeah, that's Ezekiel's temple. Cool. Okay? You'll fit right in. Verse 25. Then he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway. He measured the southern gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements. There were windows in, in it, and in its archways all around, it was 50 cubits and 25 cubits wide. 50 cubits long, 25 cubits wide. There were archways all around, 25 cubits long, 5 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court, palm trees. We're on its gateposts, and going up to it were eight steps. And he brought me into the, inner, into the inner court facing east. He measured the gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, its archways were according to these same measurements. And there were windows in it, and in its archway all, archways all around. It was 50 cubits long, 25 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court, it's, and palm trees were on its gateposts on this side and that side, going up to it were eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gateway and measured it according to the same measurements, also its gate chambers, its gateposts, its archways. It had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its gateposts faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gateposts on this side and that side, going up to it were eight steps. And so, again, we have now the, basically, this is the inner court. Oh, I'm sorry, this is the inner court, okay, and um, uh, the three gateways that lead into the inner court. Now, the altar is there in the middle of the inner court. We talk about that at the end of chapter 43. Um, so, all this, so just a couple of overview things. Um, oh, I mentioned also there's 30 rooms around the outside of the outer court. Nobody knows what those are for. But as you look at this, like just, if you look at this across the room, does it seem orderly? What kind of shape is it? Looks pretty square to me. You might even say it's like squares within a square, right? And maybe even say that this measurement is the same as this measurement, is the same as this measurement. Is God a God of order or is God a God of chaos? Okay, so there's some even some there's some sort of intangible things we can take from this, um, and uh, we can take comfort in that. God's a God of order, right? There's no chaos anywhere in this thing. And imagine again, you're a captive in Babylon, your world seems a little chaotic. You need to know that there is a God, and He's a God of order, and He's a God that's in control, and He's a God that fixes my problems, and He's a God that fixes history. And that's who we're talking about. And he's the God of this temple. So it's a great, it's really honestly a great picture. Verse 
38, chapter 40. I would ask you, where, where did I leave off? But none of you know. Verse 38, chapter 40. There was a chamber in its entrance by the gate post of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to slay the burnt offering. And so, uh, yeah, the sin offering and the trespass offering. At the, at the, outer, so at the outer side of the t vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, were two tables. And on the other side of the vestibule, the gateway, were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, one cubit high. On these they laid the inst instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks and a handbreadth hand breadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifice was on the tables. And so as best as I could get this as I was reading, basically, as you know, again, these gates are more like hallways, and on, toward the inside of these uh, were the uh, areas where they would... Um, kill the sacrifices. Now at this point, if you're really astute, you're saying, wait a minute, sacrifices, right? Because wh wh what did John the Baptist call Jesus? The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world, right? We don't need animal sacrifice anymore to save, to, to save us from our sins. We have Jesus, right? Because this is yet future, right? Here's the thing. Did animal sacrifices ever save anybody from their sins? No. No. Animal sacrifices never saved anybody for their sins. So many people would, would contend, I would be one of them, that there will be sacrifices, but more for memorial, kind of like we celebrate communion. And so it's more for memorial. Keep this in mind. Romans chapter 4, Paul goes into great detail about Abraham, right? Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And he said, Abraham was justified by what? faith. He said Abraham was justified by faith. And so basically Paul is addressing this very question to the Jewish people in the day, or, or the people with the Jewish understanding at least, that Abraham was justified by faith. J Abraham wasn't justified by killing animal sacrifices because Abraham lived before the law of Moses. So Moses and the sacrificial system came much later than Abraham himself. So Abraham was, was justified by faith and not by animal sacrifices. Uh, Paul, as a Christian, you may recall at the end of his third missionary journey, when he, Acts 21, 26, if you want to refer back there, when Paul comes back on his third missionary journey uh, back into Jerusalem, he goes in to the temple to offer some sacrifices. So Animal sacrifices were never meant to remove sin. Only the blood of Christ can remove sin. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were sort of a covering for sin, if you will. An atonement, a covering for sin. And so what we'll see in the Millennial Temple is um, a restoration of some, of some offerings, um, but not for uh, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is only through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is only through Jesus Christ. We say, oh, that's good. I never sacrifice animals to try to forgive my sins anyway. But what do we try to do to get our forgiveness of our sins? Try to be good boys and girls? Try to stop cussing? Try to be nice? All those are good, right? 
But what saves us of our sins? Only Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, I say that because I don't know the condition of everybody in the room. But Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody goes to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Now, is that popular or politically correct? Sounds kind of exclusive, doesn't it? Might sound narrow-minded, right? Well, Jesus said, enter by the which gate? The narrow gate that leads to life. And so if it seems that, I'm just quoting Jesus. Pretty good person to quote, right? And so uh, animal sacrifices don't forgive us of our sins. Being nice doesn't uh, forgive us of our sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ uh, that's freely available to each and every one of us is what forgives us of our sins. So verse 44, outside the inner gate were the chambers for the singers. And in the inner court, one facing south at the south, south of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, the chamber which faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. The, cha- the chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near the Lord to minister to him. So some of the, the descendants of Levi through the line of Zadok, uh, they're going to be uh, ones that, uh, that attend to the altar and to uh, singing. And they'll be uh, outside the um, inner gates there. Verse 47, and he measured the court 100 cubits long and 100 cubits wide, four square. The altar was in front of the temple. So, so now he's going to talk about the temple. The temple, what, what, they're, what he's calling the temple, as you read through, is actually just this part here. Okay, so we haven't got to the temple itself yet. Uh, outer court, uh, inner court, uh, some areas where the priests will uh, work. And, um, and then we're gonna, as we go into the temple part, that'll be the, the, the part that he refers to as the temple. But he says the altar here is going to be outside the temple. And again, we read more detail of that at the end of 43. Verse 48, then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the doorposts of the vestibule, five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side, and the, and the width of the gateway was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits, and by the steps which led up to it were pillars by the doorstep, by the doorposts, one on this side and one on that side. So we're talking about the steps and the vestibule that leads up to uh, the temple itself. So vestibule, kind of a, kind of a, uh, a foyer, if you will. Chapter 41. All right? Made it through chapter 40. All right? We're okay with that? Yep. Right? 41. Now, bear with me. I'm going to read all of 41 uh, together. We're going to basically, this reads about the detail of the, uh, of the temple part itself. Okay? Then he brought me into the sanctuary and measured the doorpost six cubits wide on one side and six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entryway was ten cubits, the si- uh, and, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on this side and five cubits on the other side, and he measured its length, forty cubits, and its width, twenty cubits. 
Also, he went inside, measured the doorpost, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits, and the width of the entrance, seven cubits. He measured the length, 20 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. And so, as we've seen in the tabernacle and in the previous temples, there's the, the sort of the deepest, most inner part of the whole thing is this uh, holy place. It's, it's most holy place, and sometimes referred to as the holy of holies. Um, you recall that uh, in the Old Testament system, the Holy of Holies was, was where only the high priest went only once a year, only on the Day of Atonement to uh, offer uh, offerings for the Jewish people. And so that was the most holy place. Uh, originally, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was... Um, I mean, God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. But there was a, there was a sense that, um, that that was the most holy place. That was where the presence of God uh, was represented. And that was, that was it, right? That's, that's, you wouldn't go there because of the holiness of God was so powerful that, you know, if just anybody went in there, you would die. And literally, when the priests, when the Mosaic Law was given, when the priests would go in there, they had bells on their, on their feet, right? And so when they went in there, you know, they, there's a, they're separated by a curtain. And when they go in there, um, you know, if people outside, you know, I don't hear any bells. You guys hear any bells? I don't hear any bells. Like, if you didn't hear any bells, you'd think, bummer. I guess, like, he wasn't holy enough to be in the presence of God, and they'd be kind of prepared to pull the guy out, right? So it was that serious, right? Here's the other thing that's interesting that I think bears mentioning in this context. What happened the day Jesus died? That curtain, I mean, obviously there's not a curtain here, but uh, in the temple of Herod's temple that was there the day Jesus died, there was a, there was a, a veil uh, most commentators say it's about four inches thick, right? You ever tried to tear, a phone, tear apart a telephone book? Back, just dated myself. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it. <laughs> no, I mean a telephone book, right? So, uh, or like two, two telephone books, you can't do it, right? And if somebody did tear it, if a human being tore the curtain, would he tear it from top to bottom or bottom to top? He'd do it, tear it from bottom to top, right? And, I mean, this was a massive curtain, right? The day Jesus died, it was torn in two from top to bottom. God is very specific with his details. It was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that tell us? The glory of God is accessible to anybody. Not just the priest and not just on the Day of Atonement. Anybody, anytime. The glory of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the attributes of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God are available not just to the high priest, not just to the select few, but available to every, every one of us who receives Jesus Christ anytime. It's a prayer away, right? And we need to know that for every situation, right? And so, um, so we see the description here of the most holy place. So, 
That was... Verse 5. You guys are on it. Next, he measured the wall of the temple, six cubits, the width of each, chamber, each side chamber all around. The temple was four cubits on every side. The side chambers were in three stories, one above the other, 30 chambers in each story. They rested on the ledges, which were, on the side, which were for the side chambers all around, that they might be supported but not fastened to the wall of the temple. These are sort of side, some of these side chambers around here, and different commentators have difficulty drawing that uh, in three dimension. As one went up from story to story, the side chambers became wider all around, so they're three stories tall. Because their supporting ledges in the wall of the temple ascended like steps, therefore the width of the structure increased as one went up from the lowest story to the highest by way of the middle one. I also saw an elevation all around the temple. It was the foundation of the side chambers, a full rod, that is six cubits high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits, and so also the remaining terrace by the place of the side chambers of the temple. And between it and the wall chambers was a width of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. The doors of the side chambers opened on the north terrace, oh, on the terrace, one door toward the north and another toward the south, and the width of the terrace was five cubits all around. The building that faced the separated, the separating courtyard at its western end was 70 cubits wide. The wall of the building was five cubits thick all around and its length 90 cubits. So there's this extra building. That's what this is referring to here. And nobody really knows what that's for. So verse 13. So he measured the temple. 100 cubits long and the separating courtyard with the building and its walls 100 cubits long and also the width of the eastern face of the temple including the separating courtyard so 100 cubits long sort of this length here uh, separating courtyard was 100 cubits he measured the length of the building behind it facing the separating courtyard with its galleries on one side and on the other side 100 cubits, as well as the inner temple and the porches of the court, their doorposts and the beveled window frames, and the galleries all around the three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood from the ground to the windows. The windows were covered from the space above the door even to the inner room, as well as outside and on every wall all around, inside and outside by measure. And it was made with cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherubim Cherub and cherub. Each cherub had two faces so that the face of a man was toward a palm tree on one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. Thus it was made throughout the temple all around. From the floor of the space above the door and on the wall of the sanctuary, cherubim and palm trees were carved. The doorposts of the temple were square, as was the front of the sanctuary. Their appearance was similar. The altar was of wood, three cubits high, and its length two cubits. Its corners, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. The temple and the sanctuary had two doors. The doors had two panels apiece, two folding panels, two panels for one door and two panels for the other door. The cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the temple just as they were carved on the walls. The wooden canopy was on the front of the vestibule outside. There were beveled window frames and palm trees on one side and on the other and on the sides of the vestibule, also on the side chambers of the temple and on the canopies. So again, some of the uh, sort of the artistic detail that we don't see in three dimension, but around the, um, the temple part itself. All right. Everybody good? Yep. All right. Bring it on. Chapter 42. Then he brought me out to the outer court by the way toward the north, and he brought me to the chamber which was opposite the separating courtyard. 
and which was opposite the building toward the north. So now we're coming into some of these, uh, these priest areas here, uh, priest chambers, they call it. Facing the length, which was 100 cubits, the width, of, the width was 50 cubits, was the north door, opposite the inner door of 20 cubits, the inner court of 20 cubits and opposite the pavement of the outer court was gallery against gallery and three stories in front of the chambers. Toward the inside was a walk 10 cubits wide at a distance of one cubit and their doors faced north. Now the upper chambers were shorter because the galleries took away space from, the more than, from, more than, from them more than the lower and middle stories of the building. For they were in three stories and did not, did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper level was shortened more than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. And a wall which was outside ran parallel to the chambers at the front of the chambers toward the outer court. Its length was 50 cubits. The length of the chambers toward the outer court was 50 cubits, whereas the, that facing the temple was 100 cubits. At the lower chambers was the entrance on the east side as one goes into them from the outer court. Also, there were chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east, opposite the separating courtyard and opposite the building. There was a walk in front of them also, and their appearance was like the chambers which were toward the north. They were as long and as wide as the others, and all their exits and entrances were according to the plan and corresponding to the doors of the chambers that were facing south as one enters them. There was a door in front of the walk, the way directly in front of the wall toward the east. And so this is a description of sort of these priest chambers uh, that were kind of around um, the perimeter of the, of the inner court, between the inner court and the outer court. Verse 13. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyard, are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter them, they shall go, not go out of the holy chamber into the inner, outer court, but there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments, then they may approach that which is for the people. So again, even if this is a, a sort of a memorial uh, set of offerings that they have, you still approach it with some reverence, right? We approach communion with, with reverence, right? Because we recognize what it means and, um, and the significance of it. And so that's the... Um, you know, what the priests would do. So these areas, these, pre, these priest chambers, um, or where the priests will eat, where they store their sacrifices, and where they store up their priestly garments. So, verse 15. Now, when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side of the measure, with a measuring rod. So now we're going out of the east gate there. Uh, with measuring rod, 500 rods by measuring rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side, 500 rods by the measuring rod. He came around to the west side and measured 500, measuring rod, 500 rods by measuring rod. He measured it by, on the four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubits long, 500 wide, uh, to separate the holy areas from the common. And so basically the sort of the outer dimensions there. Chapter 43. Everybody good? All right. Better than you were at the end of chapter 42, right? Or the end of, end of 41. 
43, afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And again, that's this one. That's the one Jesus is going to come through. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, nor sh they nor their kings by their harlotry or, the car or with carcasses of their kings or on their, on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name and their with, by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put, the way, put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. And so we read back in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, uh, uh, where God took Ezekiel in visions back to Jerusalem, and there was a pretty vivid description of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. And it's a picture, I mean, there's, the, the word, there's a word Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. Again, God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. But there's, uh, there's the glory of the Lord that somehow departed from the temple in Ezekiel uh, chapter 10 and 11. And in these verses, we see the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord return to the temple during the millennium. And it's a great picture of God's desire to restore fellowship, right? God is, we've read enough of the Bible to say God is all about fellowship with his children, right? What's the story of the Bible? Genesis 1, God made everything, right? Genesis 1 and 2, God made everything. Genesis 3, human beings sinned and caused separation between God and man, right? Genesis 3 from the, to the end of the book is God restoring that broken fellowship. God does it. God does it. God desires to have fellowship with his children, right? Hebrews chapter 12, I've, read, I've mentioned this a million times. Hebrews chapter 12, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? The joy was restored fellowship with us. That's the value he places on his relationship with us. And so he's all about restoring what mankind has broken. And in this case, what he's talking about here in terms of the glory of the Lord, mankind, the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, in that temple, they, they destroyed the worship of the Lord. They, they destroyed the, uh, the reverence for God. They, you know, they worship the Lord and they worship their pagan idols at the same time in the same place. And they thought no big deal about it. 
And God said, you know, my glory has departed. And, and here we see God restoring everything, God putting everything back together. God is all about restoration. It's a beautiful picture of, of who he is, that his glory would go back. And his glory will go back in through the east gate. Same way it went out, same way Jesus is coming back in through the, in the millennium kingdom. Verse 10, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so they may keep the whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, the law, this is the law of the temple. So he says, hey, the, the people that you're with there, those Jewish captives, write this all down so that they can know that basically their sin is what brought them to their present condition. But I'm going to bring them out of that. I'm going to restore them. Verse 13. These are the measurements of the altar and cubits. The cubit is uh, a cubit and a handbreadth. Now, remember I, t I said um, the altar there is in the middle court. Now we're or in the inner court. Now we're talking about the altar itself. So these are the measurements of the altar in cubits. Cubits, a cubit and a handbreadth. The base, one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge and of one span. This is the height of the altar from the base of the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, four uh, square at its corners, four corners of the ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim of, a, of half a cubit all around it, its base one cubit all around, and its steps facing toward the east. So dimensions of the altar itself. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when, I, when it is made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it, for sprinkling blood on it, you shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites who are of the, of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Then you shall, no you shall also take the bowl of the sin offering and burn it on the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. They shall cleanse the altar as, the, as they cleansed it with the bowl. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish, a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day for seven days you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and, and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar and I will accept you, says the Lord God. So the details of the sacrifice is similar to the Old Testament system. He'll have, we'll have the, um, the burnt offering and the, um, what are they, the sin offering. And the, I believe the peace offering. 
All right? There you go. Millennial kingdom. We'll be there. We'll be there. We'll be there, and we'll see this thing. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Is it crazy that God will give us this much detail? Kind of. Let me ask you this. So I read at the beginning, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and we should regard it as that, right? And so today we did, right? And yet, there might be a part of us that thinks, huh? (laughs) Why do we care? What's this got to do with Russia and Ukraine? Right? What's this got to do with a recession and rising interest rates? Right? What's this got to do with my relationships? Everything. Everything. Right? It's, it's a beautiful picture of God's order. It's a beautiful picture that His ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah tells us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And our problem is, you know, He's up here and we live down here. Right? But it's a beautiful thing when He gives us a picture of a world that maybe seems a little foreign to us. Because it's a reminder that we're, we're just passing through on this life. Right? So we, have, we can look forward to this. Don't anybody say, what's that, when you get to the Millennial Kingdom. Fair enough? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for Your goodness. Thanks for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy. Thanks that You are so orderly that You would give us this much detail that we can look forward to during times of discouragement, times of wondering what is the big picture. But Lord, you are the big picture. And so we rejoice in you and we thank you for uh, restoring relationship with us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to eternity with you. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.